from $877 million in worldwide sales to $9.2 billion within 10 years. Nike spent $300 million of overseas advertising alone, most of it centered around the Just Do It campaign. But the success of the campaign is most remarkable, I find, when one considers that an estimated 80% of the sneakers sold in the U.S. are never used for the activities for which they were designed. <laughs> Folks, here's the reality. That most of those who buy the Nike shoes aren't doing it. They're not playing basketball. They're not playing tennis. They're not running track. And they're not even cross-training. They are doing none of the above activities. The Nike swoosh has become a fashion statement, a statement of allegiance to a brand, of an idea, rather than a reality. Oh, that is so, that is so true. Just Do It has been, really is a universally recognized slogan in our day. It sounds good, it sounds empowering, but I am here this morning to say, you can't do it. You can't do it. You cannot obey God's commands apart from His grace. The Bible tells us that. The law of God tells us that. The ratification of this book of the covenant tells us that this morning. You can't do it. And neither could the people of God in the book of Exodus. Well, if you were with us last week, we spoke about this book of the covenant from Exodus 21, 22, and 23. Much like America was formed through its constitution, by adopting a constitution, a set of laws, a set of rights in which to govern the people, so God constituted people unto himself through the law of God in the wilderness on the Sinai Peninsula. Well, this morning is really part two of last week's message. It's the ratification of this book of covenant, of these set of laws and commands which we have studied. Last week's message aimed to show us the good and the intent of God's law. In essence, I tried to endeavor to show us why we are to obey God's law and commands. The main theme, as Jose said this morning leading worship, was to obey God's law as God's grace. This morning, we're talking about, yes, not only why, but we're talking about how this morning. How do we obey God's law and God's commands? So your main theme is in your notes. As God's people, obey God's command, how? By receiving God's grace. By receiving God's grace. We're going to go three words this morning. Very simple. Three words You'll see in your notes, commit, confess, and come. Commit to obeying God. Confess your sin and your inability to obey God's commands. And come. Come to God. Come to the throne of grace. There you go. Three points, very simple. Commit, confess, and come. With that, let us pray. Oh, Lord, we do commit ourselves 
this morning to you. We commit our ears to you. We commit our minds to you. We commit our hearts to you. And we confess that we need you. That we need a Savior. Not just the day in which we were born again, regenerated, experienced new life in you. We need a Savior today to obey you and to follow you as you have commanded. Lord, draw us to yourself today. Draw us to your Son, Jesus. And use your preached word through your Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds and our hearts. Your very truth communicated and revealed to us this morning as your people, as your children. Amen. Let's open up now to Exodus chapter 24. We're going to read the first 11 verses of this chapter that will form the text for this morning. We're going to go there. I want to read along. If you could, we're going to refer to this text throughout the sermon this morning. Starting with verse 1 of chapter 24. Then he, that is God, said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men to the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins. And half the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as if it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. This morning's message, as God's people, obey God's commands by receiving his grace. We read in verse 3, chapter 24, it says, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. What is he speaking about here? I believe it's clear that the words spoken were the very words spoken to God's people back in Exodus 23. We call them the Ten Commandments. Not only do I want you to obey the Ten Commandments, but all the rules. What are the rules referring to in verse 3? I believe it's the covenant, the book of the covenant we've just been studying. Not only in chapter 20, but 21, 22, and 23. All the ordinances which were discussed last week. Yes, we will. What was your response? Yes, 
We will do it. Can you relate? 40 minutes of worshiping God in song on a Sunday morning, followed by 40 minutes, hopefully, of passionate teaching from the Word of God, followed by a ministry song, maybe in a time of ministry, closing with an inspiring benediction. And we leave the auditorium, yes, Lord, we'll do it. Yes, Lord, whatever you ask. And then comes Monday morning. There's no Miguel, the worship team, to wake you up in the morning. There's no preacher at your bedside. All of a sudden, that confident assurance of obedience and vows and commitments are already waning. And you haven't even got out of bed yet. And it's Monday morning. That commitment that you had leaving on Sunday to talk to that person, that dear friend of yours, perhaps to lovingly confront them, perhaps to confess your sin to them. Oh, it begins to wane. That commitment that you vowed to do, that project, that assignment that you haven't done because you have been lazy. That commitment to not put another dollar on your maxed out credit card begins to wane and you feel weak. That commitment not to be harsh or be angry with your child today. Oh, we commit. How easy at times to commit when we're right here on Sunday morning. How quickly that commitment can wane. You see, it's easy, isn't it, at times to echo the words of commitment and to not follow through. It's easy to say, just do it and buy a Nike brand. It's easy to have allegiance to a logo. It's easy to have an allegiance to Palm Vista Community Church or to the Sovereign Grace logo. You think because you're here and you've heard the word and now you're going to go out and do it and you assume you have, but you haven't. To become a hearer of the word but not a doer of the word, James 1. How easy it is to echo empty commitments, even with the best intent, even on a Sunday morning. How easy it is to have a commitment and to make it, but yet to do it for the wrong motives as well. See, this commitment that the Israelites made in Exodus 24, verse 3, wasn't the first time they had echoed or said such weighty words. It was reminiscent of the response they gave back to God when they had received the wonderful promise. The very theme verse of Exodus, Exodus 19, verses 5 through 6. I'll just read it to you. It says this. You may be familiar with it. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasure possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And in verse 8, the people of Israel reply, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. It's a lot easier, though, isn't it, to make a commitment out of ignorance, isn't it? Little did the people of Israel know in chapter 19 what was coming in chapter 20, 21, 22, and 23. Little did they know that which would be asked of them and then veiled in the book of the covenant. It's also a lot easier to make a commitment out of fear as well. In Exodus 20, we read after the giving of the Ten Commandments, the people were no longer ignorant, but they were gripped with fear as God in His holiness addressed them. As they heard the thunder and the trumpet from heaven, as they saw 
the lightning in the sky, and the smoke from Mount Sinai. They say these words. They were terrified. In verse 19, Moses, you speak to us, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. I just have to wonder if that fear played into the response in chapter 24, verses 3, as well as 7. The fact is, God is calling us as His covenant people to obey Him. To obey Him in all areas of our lives, as we spoke about last week. But He is not calling us to obey out of ignorance, nor out of fear. You see, ignorance and fear may engender a verbal commitment of obedience, but it won't last. It'll never produce lasting change and obedience. But a little footnote here. You may say, well, isn't fear of God appropriate? Yes, but let me define what I believe is a biblical fear of the Lord. I'm going through Proverbs right now with my children, and we are talking much about fear of the Lord. For it is the beginning of what? Wisdom. It is good. No, fear of the Lord, properly understood, is a fear of the Lord. It's a reverence to the Lord. It is an awe of God and His holiness and majesty, coupled with faith. Fear the Lord is a fear of God coupled with faith. They only know He is holy. He is to be worshipped. We can now approach Him through the blood of Jesus. We're going to talk about that later on. That is appropriate fear of God. What I'm not talking about is a fear where faith is absent. A fear where faith is absent. Fear without faith. It's slavery. It's servile. It's a terrible master. Why do you obey? Why do your children obey? As parents, so easy. Fear me and obey me. Oh, it works for a while. That's not how God treats us. And neither is it the appropriate motivation for lasting change and obedience, is it? It may produce quick results, but it won't produce hard change, as we know. You see, God wants to inform our obedience with the only true motivation, the only true motivation, and that is God's grace. Faith in God's grace. It's only God's grace, not fear, not ignorance, that can produce a joy-filled, faith-filled obedience that pleases God. It's only God's grace that can move us forward, can move us toward God in fellowship and communion with Him. God wants you to obey Him in every area of your life. But here's the great news, if you haven't caught it. God never asks you to commit without providing a way. He will never ask you to commit to something in which He will not provide the way. And that way is through the blood of Jesus, as we will learn. That way is by receiving God's grace. Going back to the main theme of our notes this morning. As God's people, we are called to obey God's commands by receiving God's grace. In other words, our commitment to God is a response to God's grace. It is a response to His grace. His gracious provision for us as sinners. That's what this covenant ratification, this ceremony we just read, is all about. It is a response and acknowledgement of his grace. Implicit in this very ceremony we just read is the very need that we have 
as sinners for forgiveness, for atonement, for the covering of our sins. There's the acknowledgement that we can't fulfill God's law and commands. We will fall short. We can not do it. It's all implicit. It's right here in the ceremony itself. In fact, the fact that we cannot do it is spoken about in the law itself. In the very scripture that Jose Prado read earlier in worship, Romans chapter 3, starting with verse 19. Let's hear it with our own ears. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Catch verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Through the law comes a very knowledge of sin. It's this very covenant ceremony that reveals our sinfulness as shown by the law, our inability to obey God's commands fully and perfectly. We have a little ceremony, a little covenant ceremony in our home very often. It goes like this. When we have a disobedient child, we say, hopefully lovingly, calmly, please go to the room. You parents, you know what the room is, whatever your room is, right? I then proceed to affectionately take out what we call the wisdom worker, or the wisdom whacker, known in the Bible as the rod of discipline, and lovingly apply it to my child. I then tell them this as this little covenant ratification is going on. I tell them that even though mommy and daddy require obedience, that they are not able to do it in their own strength. There's all this talk, funny talk in our culture. You can be whatever you want to be. I tell my kids, you can't even be what you don't want to be. Catch that? You can't even be what you don't want to be. Read Romans 7. I don't want to give them confidence in their ability to obey. I want them to know, in fact, it's futile. I require it as God requires it. But because I also know there is a gracious provision found in Jesus Christ that I want to lead them to, I then pray with them that they would see their need for a Savior, Jesus Christ, who took the punishment that they deserve and mommy and daddy deserve as well and took it upon themselves that they would receive forgiveness and now the freedom and the power to obey. That's what I want my parents. That's what I want the children to know. It takes all about five minutes maximum. But it reminds my children, it reminds me of what covenant faithfulness and obedience requires. And it also reminds me of the solution and the provision as well. You see, it's this covenant ceremony that we have recorded. That only reveals our sinfulness, ah, but which anticipates the gospel mentioned in my prayer with the kids. The good news of Jesus Christ and his blood shed on the cross for our sins. We read in Exodus 24, verse 4, that second half will start. He, that's Moses, rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he set young men of the people of Israel 
who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. You see, these burnt, these peace offerings signified at least two things. Number one, penalty. There is a penalty for breaking God's commands. That penalty is death as seen the sacrificial victims. And number two, not only is there a penalty, there is also a provision for their breaking of the covenant. And that provision is the blood. Here's the punchline, if you haven't got it. When God gave his law, he knew that his people would break his initiated covenant. He knew it, but he provided a way. That's what the blood in this text is not just sprinkled on the altar, perhaps symbolizing God's acceptance. But this is why the blood is sprinkled on the people themselves, because they need forgiveness, as we do as well. Let's look at verse 7, chapter 24. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood, I love this, and threw it. Some versions may say sprinkled. I don't believe that's adequate. This word here in Hebrew can literally mean scattered abundantly, threw the blood on the people and covered them for their iniquities and sin. And then he said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. I love that. As the author in Hebrew states, chapter 9, verse 22 of Hebrews, he's speaking now of this covenant ceremony. Recall last week, we're taking the New Testament to help us interpret the Old. He says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. But these animal sacrifices, although required, listen to this, were inadequate. Were inadequate to forgive. It all pointed to a better sacrifice and a better covenant ratified through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's what we read in the book of Hebrews. It should be on the overhead. Hebrews 9, verse 12. He, that is Christ, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sacrifices, sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is a mediator of a new covenant, of a better covenant, my friends, which is ours this morning in Christ Jesus. Jesus took the wrath of God that we deserved as covenant breakers and he absorbed it himself to the point of death on a cross that we may be forgiven and now free to obey him. That's the grace we are to receive. So the question for each one of us this morning, do you believe it? Is this grace informing and motivating your obedience in all areas? How do you even know? 
If you are here this morning and you think that obedience is somehow earned, excuse me, a way to earn God's favor or a way to pay back God for what he has done on the cross, may I put it politely, you don't get it and you won't do it. That is obey. Your obedience will wane. Why? Because you can never pay back God. It is an impossibility. His grace was never meant to be paid back, but to be received time and time again. Every time you're convicted by your sin, by the law of God, you are to cry out to not only forgiveness, but the grace now to obey Him. It's that which honors God. It's that which we were meant to do as His people. Obedience cannot be motivated by the desire to earn His favor, nor to nor to pay him back for it, my friends. It will not work. If you're here this morning and you were afraid to make a commitment to God, perhaps in that one area that you're just hesitant to release to him, maybe a fear of breaking your, maybe you do it because you're a fear, in fear of just breaking your commitment. You've done it. I'm just going to do it again. And you're fearful. Perhaps you're fearful of committing to something and then being enslaved to God. And you don't want that. If that is so, may I suggest you don't get it and you won't do it. That is obey Him. You see, you have already broken every commitment that you've ever, ever made, if not an act or deed in thoughts. Why? How do I know? I know what the Bible says, that we are spiritually depraved. That sin has affected all parts of us. Our mind, our will, and emotions. But God's grace frees us. God's grace forgives us to try and to try again in His strength even when we fail. Oh, in the words of John Piper, faith in future grace is the source of radical risk-taking Kingdom-seeking obedience. That is, faith in His grace, His future grace, is a faith in His promises to forgive you, to sustain you, and to empower you to obey now and on Monday morning and Tuesday morning and throughout the week, even when we're most sorely tempted would your obedience this morning be described as radical, that is in the eyes of the world, or risk-taking? I want to ask a few questions. I ask this aware that many, many are serving so well here at Palm Vista. But I don't want any of us, including myself, to excuse us because we're a member of Palm Vista and we are intimately involved in this church. I thank you for your commitment. We have wonderful members here at Palm Vista. We are unified in serving our Lord and Savior. I don't want to ask this question. I want you to listen and ask that yourselves. Is this risk-taking radical obedience, does it define you? How about in the areas of finances and generosity? See, I believe some of us are holding back this morning. This is what makes me so excited as I look at this next year. The things that we're trusting God for. Money to send our first man here at Palm Vista to Pastors College. 
Money one day to plant a Spanish-speaking church. Money even to have our own facility. What is that going to demand of us? Nothing less than radical, risk-taking obedience to our Lord and Savior. That's what we're trusting God for. And it is possible only by His grace. How about risk-taking, radical commitment and obedience in the area of evangelism? Some of you, your mouths are shut right now. I will confess, my mouth was shut last Wednesday night. My pride was in full view. Even Cindy said, hey, uh, Corey, why don't you uh, share with the waiter? Just because she told me that. <laughs> All my pride welled up. Hey, it's going to be my idea, my terms, okay? <laughs> if I'm going to share with the waiter. I didn't say that, but I'm thinking that. At that point, my pride was in full view. God's grace was not in full view. My mouth was shut. My witness was muted. How about you? I did not ask and I did not receive God's grace that was there for me even at that moment. How about in the area of service to the saints, to the church? Send me this morning, maybe holding back. You're a spectator. You may not say it, but your actions do say this. No, I'm glad to be here, but don't depend on me. I will serve on my terms. If so, you have an obedience problem. It's not with me. It's not with Al. It's as we understand the church to function as an organic body of people exercising their gifts, using their resources to edify and build up his church for his kingdom witness. It's a matter of obedience. Perhaps you've never tasted this grace that I'm talking about. Perhaps you've just lost sight of God's grace in which we speak this morning. Tomorrow, the next day, this next year can be different. Our God is a gracious God. I love this phrase, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love towards you, his people. There is hope. But he wants us to cry out for his grace, not to presume upon his grace, but to cry out continually in prayer for grace to obey him and fulfill his commands and the works which he has prepared for you in advance before the creation of the world for you to walk in. Oh, may it be. May it be for you. May it be for me. In summary, our commitment to obey is always a response to his grace. We can't do it apart from his grace. It's His grace that does not minimize our commitment, does not minimize our commitment, but in fact makes it possible. It is His grace. So what is our duty as Christians? To commit to obey, to confess our sin and need for a Savior, and thirdly, to come to God, to the throne of grace. It doesn't stop at the first two. Commit and confess, we often stop there, but we're not finished yet, and neither is the text. There's something else that God wants us to hear this morning. If we're going to be his obedient, covenant people, he wants communion with him. And that leads to the final point. Come to God in communion. Let's look at verse 9 of Exodus 24. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel, there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven 
for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. I love that phrase. That last phrase. They beheld God and they ate and drank. Here we have the conclusion and the fulfillment of God's word to Moses in the very first verse of chapter 24. Remember he said, then he said to Moses, what? Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Now we have the covenant ceremony, verses 3 through 8. Now he's saying, come, you can come. Provision has been made. Yes, I am still a holy God, but you should fear, but also the God who has made a way, a provision for you. Come to me. What's once impossible has now been made possible through God's gracious provision. Not just for the elders of Israel, but now for us today. For all those who are in Christ Jesus. The meal that they share with God is a joyous confirmation of the covenant made. It was also a confirmation of their status before God. And it's easy to miss this point. I want to take a little time here. See, it's clear that we, like the elders, are not equals with God. That's why I love the phrase. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. You see, when people in the Bible saw God, they were terrified and they expected to die. Perhaps the reason that the elders only saw or only could describe what was at the feet of God was because they were laid down flat, prostrate before God in worship. And that's all their eyes could behold in the mighty and terrifying sight of God, the one holy God. Yet, in God's infinite grace, he receives them. Not only does he receive them, catch this, he feeds them. Do you understand what is happening here? A holy God is welcoming sinners to his table. This isn't about food, primarily. This is about status. You see, in Jewish culture, in the Middle East, these meals were ceremonies. Ceremonies that confirmed and conferred status upon individuals. It meant something to be invited and to be seated at the table that you are being received as equals, so to speak, before those who are inviting you. Oh, that's why the Pharisees were so appalled when Jesus would eat with tax collectors and sinners, those who were perceived to be unclean and beneath them. How could you do that? Do you understand what you're communicating when you eat with these people? Oh, Christ did. You know what? I think the pre-incarnate Christ was right here on Mount Sinai as well. He could do it on earth, but he'd already done it right there in the Old Testament as well. Oh, he knew his father. He could welcome them because he knew what he came to do was to die for the very sinners, not only to redeem them, but to bring them into his presence. Let's put it all together. God has forgiven us not only so we do not stand condemned, but so we can come near and experience his presence, experience his beauty, and experience his majesty as a people of God. God wants us to relate to him. 
and obey Him, not primarily out of tear like a Mount Sinai, not out of ignorance, but as His children, as the children, the sons and daughters of the one living God. Not only has God saved us, God has adopted us into His family. And He has seated us at His very table. Not too long ago, I had a chance to speak with Brian and Breath Brookins. Brian, pastor of the church in Riverside Christian Fellowship. And some of you may know, may have even seen two of his children at the Sold Out Conference. He adopted two children from the country of Ghana. Their names, Caleb and Joshua. I asked Brian just permission to share this story. It affected me. It affected my wife as well. Caleb and Joshua grew up in a Muslim household in Ghana. Their mother was an alcoholic. They lived with their grandmother, but their grandmother couldn't feed them. They scavenged garbage cans by day to find food to eat. Then Brian and Beth and the family adopted them, brought them to America, and seated them at their table. And Beth was just saying, what a sight to behold, to see these kids at their table with four other blonde hair, red hair children and then to serve them a meal. And Caleb and Josh were just saying, is this for me? Is this mine? Oh, mommy, I love you. Oh, mommy, I love you. Is this mine? That's what God has done for us by adopting us. Do you understand? God could have saved us. He could have justified. He could have delivered us and left us in the wilderness. He'd be no less for it. God was under no obligation to save us and then adopt us and treat us as his own sons. I would do well to take the scraps from the table of the God Almighty. Like the Syrophoenician woman, if you recall the story in the Gospels, she goes to Jesus and asks Jesus to heal her demon-possessed daughter. And Jesus says to this lady, it is not right for me to give food, bread of the children, to dogs. It is not right to give what is for the Jews to you Gentiles. Do you recall her response? Ah, but even dogs eat crumbs from the table. And God said, oh, your faith woman. She's delivered. Healed. That's the kind of faith he wants for us. But God doesn't stop with the crumbs. He wants to seat you at the table. He wants to show you something about his glory, his majesty, and his beauty. God has adopted us and seated us at his table. Why? So we can worship and obey Him with grace-filled, joy-filled obedience. Who would you rather obey? An enemy out to kill you or a father who has demonstrated his love for you? A father who is not your equal. A father who has authority over you, yet has seated you at his dinner table. When I was a younger, young teenager, I spent the summer working on the farm of one of my uncles. It was the hardest work that I've ever done. When I worked in the fields, I worked as one of his employees. And my uncle treated me just like any other employee on his farm. Essentially, I felt like a slave. He yelled at me. I could not sit in his presence. I could only stand. I couldn't walk when doing a job. I needed to run. I would literally carry... 30-foot aluminum pipes, sprinkler pipes, and I would carry them across potato fields, sloshing in the mud one by one. 
But when he came, we had to run through the fields. It was absurd. I was motivated by fear. It was pure fear. But you know what? When he wasn't looking, I wasn't running. <laughs> and I often wasn't standing. <laughs> oh, I worked hard. But there was a different, different perspective when he was absent. But when I entered the farmhouse that night, after a long day in the fields, I was no longer his employee. I was his nephew. In fact, I was family. My uncle would always seat me at the very head of the table with all my cousins. And he would smile. He would talk softly. He had thighs that were big as tree trunks and arms that matched. He had a hand that was like a baseball glove, a catcher's mitt. I remember him passing me the meat and potatoes with that warm look. Corey, do you want some more? Do you want some more? Those hands and those arms were means of grace to me. And it told me, I am family. How do you view God? As an enemy, as a taskmaster demanding your obedience? Or as a father in heaven who has seated you at his table and lavished his grace upon you? Have you tasted his kindness lately? His majesty more beautiful than sapphire? as mentioned in this text. When I see a sunset over the keys, the Florida Straits, I want to gaze long and hard. When I see a military officer or one in uniform coming back, presumably from war in the airport, I want to salute. When I get a little glimpse of God I want to worship and obey. Do you see? That's what God wants to see this morning. The holy God who has brought us to his table as his children to show forth his glory and bounty that you would obey him with abounding grace and glorify him. Are you obeying him today? Are God's commands to you a burden today? Do you dread submitting to God in that one area? You know what that is? That one area of your life that has plagued you. Have you lost sight of God's splendor and grace? If you are not a Christian this morning, the first step is to repent, to turn from your sins, and to commit your whole life to God's control and to God's mercy. That is your first step. That you also will be called as part of the people of God. And that you, my prayer, that you would share in the table fellowship of the Lord, your creator. If you are a Christian this morning, God is calling you to commit afresh to obeying him. To confess afresh that you are a sinner, that you cannot obey him. Apart from God's grace as seen through his son who died for you on the cross. And now he's saying, come my child, come to the throne of grace. Eat at his table. Drink from the fountain of delight. With that, let us worship. I want to read a part of the chorus of the song we're about to sing in appropriate response this morning. The song, many of you know, is Jesus, thank you. 
I want to read the course, though, and I want you to make the connection this morning. Let's do this quietly. This is a time of application and worship. Let me read the course to you. Your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. May those words explode in your mind, in your hearts, as we sing this morning. And may the appropriate response be, Jesus, thank you. Let us stand.